This is a topic I, I, I find interesting and I think uh, for a lot of us uh, struggle because a lot of attendings approach children with fever in sometimes different ways and so we get a little confused about how we really should do this. And so uh, you'll get another chance to hear how I feel about it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, parents come to you with uh, bringing children with fever and you'll, this is a very common complaint uh, that, uh, you know, depending on, on what ER you're at, 20 to 25% even of your kid, the patients you see will be kids, and often they're coming there because they have fever, or the parents are concerned. And why is this? Well, often parents are concerned about brain damage, death, seizures. Um, they sometimes are worried actually that a child might have a serious illness and maybe needed antibiotics. That's what they're concerned about. What we're often concerned about is, I, well, at least what I am concerned about is, well, can I find a source for this, this fever? And is there a serious bacterial infection there or not? So um, most of the time, it, through a good physical exam history, we're able to find a source. But for those without a source, you know, deciding what we should really do uh, can be a little vexing and controversial and a little art <laughs> sometimes. Um, and so today we're going to look, uh, talk a little bit about evaluating infant, neonates and infants with fever. Uh, we're going to uh, recognize certain factors that, um, that put children, certain children at greater risk for serious bacterial infection, and then just kind of develop a diagnostic plan to rule out serious bacterial infection in, in febrile children. So, the 1980s. Woo! <laughs> ah, geez, I can't, I wanted to do a moonwalk, but... I could, two, too slippery, man. Okay. <laughs> so who was their big enemy in the 1980s? Soviet Union. Soviet Union? No. Haemophilus influenza type B. At least in the pediatric world, that was their big enemy. And uh, Haemophilus influenza is an aerobic gram-negative bacteria. Uh, with a polysaccharide capsule. There's six different serotypes, but 95% of the invasive disease was caused by type B. Now, uh, most of the patients that got Haemophilus influenza B is usually trans uh, receive it from an asymptomatic carrier who's coughing it up, and then you take it into your nasal pharynx and get infected. Um, if you have a cold or something, that kind of mucosa uh, the injury and inflammation makes it a little more likely to be infected. So this is kind of interesting. You see what Haemophilus influenza B, who that influenza, Haemophilus was infecting in the 1980s. It's really a, a disease of the young, you know, um, from uh, first year or two of life. And certainly, you know, getting them back up to five years of age, you can see how the numbers really dropped off. And one in 200 children in the 1980s would uh, have, before they turned five, would have an invasive bacterial infection due to Haemophilus influenza B. Meningitis, it accounted for over half of the cases of meningitis at that time. A lot of those kids had hearing impairment or neuro neurologic sequelae. And there was a two to five percent fatality rate even when it was recognized early on and treated effectively. So, whew, we needed a superpower, and we got it. Haemophilus influenza type B polysaccharide conjugate vaccine came in the picture and really changed uh, the whole kind of uh, spectrum of disease that we were seeing after this in children. Um, this is what happened. So. We had a Haemophilus vaccine in about the mid-later 80s, but it wasn't really uh, the conjugate vaccine that came out in about 1990. And after that, you can see how Haemophilus influenza B vac, uh, disease just went to basically nothing. So now, mostly if we're going to see Haemophilus disease in kids, it's going to be mainly kids who are incompletely vaccinated or unvaccinated. So that brought us to the 1990s. I guess it's a little hard to see that. Uh, it's having a little hard time to lighting up here, it looks like. <laughs> there we go. All right, the 1990s. Uh, 
What? Oh, Miracle in Iowa? Not anybody know what that is? The septuplets. Dolly, the clone sheep. Remember that in England? Not that there's anything wrong with that. All right. <laughs> so who was our big enemy in the 1990s? Hair scrunchies. Hair scrunchies. Flannel shirt. <laughs> Saddam Hussein, maybe? Nah. In the pediatric world, our biggest enemy was? Streptococcus pneumoniae. Okay. The gram positive bacteria was first isolated by Louis Pasteur in 1881. It um, was confused with other causes of pneumonia until Gramstein came into the picture in 1884. Um, and there's more than 80 serotypes that were, were described by 1940, and actually I think there's over 90 now. Um, the poly, there's a polysaccharide capsule also with uh, streptococcus that is an important factor in its virulence. And if you have type-specific antibody, it will protect you from streptococcus. So human carriers serve as a reservoir. It's spread, of course, by respiratory transmission. Um, and these are the main kind of diseases that we have problems with, have problems with pneumonia, bacteremia, and meningitis. Um, estimated 175,000 hospitalizations per year in the U.S. due to pneumococcal pneumonia. Up to 30% of adult community-acquired pneumonia and 50% of hospital-acquired pneumonia. And it's a common complication of influenza and measles, which we don't see too much anymore. Uh, bacteremia, more than 50,000 cases in the United States. Rates are higher among young children and in the elderly. Uh, if you do get pneumococcal bacteremia, it has a fairly high case fatality rate, up to 60% in the elderly. Estimated 3,000 to 6,000 cases per year of pneumococcal meningitis. Uh, fatality rate of about 30%, 80% in the elderly. Um, often survivors have neur neurologic sequelae of this. In children, um, bacteremia uh, without a known site of infection, uh, this is the most common um, pneumococcal disease and the most com common uh, presentation, 13,000 per year uh, prior to vac other vaccinations. And uh, common cause of uh, ear infections, leading cause of bacterial meningitis in children younger than five. So we really needed another superhero. This is looking at uh, uh, data from late 80s, but this is fairly similar to the 1990s as well. And you can see that uh, if you look at kind of a peak of illness, again, young children in the first couple years of life, and then kind of goes down and then starts going up again as you, uh, in the elderly. So these are children that um, are at increased risk for pneumococcal disease. Uh, those with a, a functional asplenia, sickle cell disease, HIV infection, uh, patients who've had a, res, uh, a cochlear implant. Um, uh, think about that as far as children coming in. You have uh, a number of children that are receiving those here at the university. Uh, Out-of-home group daycare, African-American children, and also some of the Native American and, and uh, uh, Inuit uh, children are a little more at risk. So we needed another superhero, and as we all know, we uh, had that pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, Pneumovax, uh, came in the picture about the, the year 2000, and it's really starting to change the whole kind of bacterial uh, disease spectrum that we're seeing in children. Uh, now, some of you might uh, not realize there have been, or maybe you do, there has been pneumococcal vaccines prior to the Pneumovax. In 1977, there's a 14-valent uh, vaccine. In 1983, a 23-valent polysaccharide vaccine that was licensed. And uh, they were, those 23 valents were actually accounted for 88% of the bacterial pneumococcal disease that we were seeing. So um, what's so different about Pneumovax and, and the new vaccine? Well, this vaccine really is, was not infective in children under two years of age and it was less effective in preventing pneumococcal pneumonia. So, um, so it really didn't really change things very much until the pneumococcal um, conjugate vaccine, PCV7, Pneumovax, that has uh, contained seven serotypes, 
so a lot less um, than the previous vaccine, but still accounts for 86% of the serotypes uh, that cause bacteremia and 83% that cause meningitis in children young, younger than six years. And what we're going to be seeing is additional vaccines that are going to cover more serotypes than the present seven in the future. So what has happened since that's been, uh, since Numavax has been introduced? Well, here you can see in uh, different bars here, less than one, one, two years of age, what's happened? 2002, 2004, 2005, and it's continued to go down beyond that. So uh, it's been very, very interesting how this has changed, how much new, uh, pneumococcal invasive disease that we're seeing. Um, you can also see something that's interesting is that here's the children in the, in the kind of target area of who's receiving the pneumovax vaccine, but looks what happens to the invasive pneumococcal disease in other ages. Um, you know, if you just look elderly, they're having an effect where by vaccinating children, everybody else is having a herd effect um, and having less disease as well the power of vaccines. And so here we're seeing uh, kind of numbers of direct and indirect cases of pneumococcal disease that have been pre prevented in those years uh, from Pneumovax. So that's really changed a little bit of how we look at, at approach. Why I did that is that I think everybody should have a little background about what the history of, of um, bacterial disease in children has been recently because it does affect greatly about what we do as far as workup and how things are going to change and, uh, and what we're doing even right now as far as our workup with kids with fever. So uh, fever definition, 1868, Karl Wunderich published Das Verhalten der Eigenwurme in Krankheiten on the course of temperature and disease. And in that uh, work he established at 38.0 degrees centigrade, 100.4 as a normal limit of normal body temperature after measuring an estimated 1 million axillary temperatures on 25,000 patients. Now, um, he also described the diurnal variation of body temperature and informed clinicians that body temperature is a range rather than a specific temperature. Um, he was from Leipzig, Germany, did a lot of his work there, which we totally bombed in World War II, but uh, <laughs> That building is a total reconstruction of the original building, Rod House. In the 1860s, you'd be surprised. That was a great pickup line. <laughs> I'm telling you. Okay. Now, a little more recently, in uh, here's a study that was done on 691 healthy infants um, under three months of age in a well baby vi visit. And if you, if you define fever as being beyond two standard deviations above the mean, then the, they found that 100.4 in neonates, 100.5 in children one to two months, and 100.7 in two to three months was the um, you know, definition above which would be a fever. So that's pretty close to the same what Carl found. So we, we still use that. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about this, but the, the main thing is that uh, obtaining a, a temperature, an accurate temperature, is really important because a lot of you know, determinations about what we do depends on getting an accurate temperature and see if there really is a fever. And rectal temperature still remains a standard, especially in younger infants. So if there's any question about what temperature you, in a younger infant, you should get a, a rectal temperature. You know, what about tactile temp temperature taking by parents. Well, actually it's uh, subjective kind of uh, determination of fever is generally good, um, but has some variability and sensitivity. Uh, excessive bundling can affect the skin temperature, but it will not affect rectal temperature. So, uh, you know, if you have any question, child's warm, uh, do a rectal temperature and see if that's really true. And uh, if an infant with tactile fever only in a normal physical exam, you know, sometimes people suggest you might consider repeating the temperature in the ER clinic and kind of make certain, uh, especially if you're talking a child who's, you know, a month of age or younger. But um, 
if, I, if somebody's feeling it's warm and I have a normal uh, rectal temperature, I'm not usually going to get too concerned about that. But what if they come in with a history of having a fever documented at home only? You know, parents took a temperature and it was 101.5, and now the temperature is normal in the emergency room. Well, there was a study here done on 292 young febrile infants admitted for fever. 40 of those had a history of an elevated rectal temperature at home, but not in the ER. Only eight subsequently had a fever in the hospital of that group. But four of them, 10%, had an SBI. So, so is that four of the eight or yeah. four of the total? Yeah, four of the eight. Well, you know what? I'm not positive of that anymore. I believe it was the ones that had a fever in the hospital as well. Oh, 10%. 10%. Oh, I'm sorry, 10% of the 40. Yeah, 10% of the 40. I'm sorry, not 10% of the 8. No, 10% of the 40. Of the 4? That's what I thought the question was, and I wasn't positive of that. I think they were all in the febrile group, but I'm not positive of that. Um, <clears throat> in a large office uh, study looking at infants less than 3 months, 835 febrile patients at home, but not in the office, only 6.7% had bacteremia or meningitis. You know, pretty small percentage, right? But that still counted for nearly 10% of the 63 patients they actually identified with a serious bacterial infection. So the wisdom about this is that if you have a, somebody coming in and they had a fever documented at home and it's a young infant, it probably should be taken seriously and generally treated just as if they had a fever in the... Um, emergency room. What do you call an accurate home temperature? Well, that's a, yeah, a little question. That's a good question, um, but I would. I mean, if they get the, one of those tests and it comes back, um, you know, in a range that's truly a fever, I would still be concerned. We're talking about, you know, those first few months of life. Um, I think it really, we need to be kind of, you have to be very, very I mean, if you have a child that looks totally fine, I might still do some work up, you know, and, you know, you're kind of just taking a little bit of risk. I would take it fairly seriously. Granted, still most of those patients are still not going to have a serious bacterial infection, but the incidence is high enough and complications would be, if they did have it, might be serious enough that you do need to be taking it seriously. And there was no mention in that of if they had received Tylenol? Oh, um... No, I mean, I think that sometimes that's a case. They might have had a fever at home and they gotten, uh, an, you know, gotten an antipyretic and now they don't have a fever. Yeah, I mean, that happens sometimes. So, um, general approach, you know, obviously you want to take a good history and exam. Often uh, this will make the diagnosis. There are a lot of things that can cause fever in the, as far as a differential diagnosis, but in children, primarily it's going to be infectious. Uh, if you do see that there's a fever. Yeah. Well, if you have, well, I mean, if you have a high, I mean, if you had a fever at home and they, it was a three-week-old, and I mean, this might be different if you had a three-month-old, you know, they had a fever, and they, that might be different, but if you have a three-week-old and they had a fever of 100.5 or higher and uh, they gave Tylenol, it's down now, I'd, I'd do a workup on them. I mean, they're just, you know, too young to just not take that seriously. Okay, so a lot of times our evaluation is, is trying to determine whether there's a serious bacterial infection or not. And some viral infections can have serious consequences, but usually bacterial inf uh, infections have more uh, worse outcomes. So those children that might be at higher risk for serious bacterial in infection uh, include the following. These children are going to be a little more likely to do further workup on them, uh, even at older ages like children with chronic illnesses, cystic fibrosis, diabetes, congenital heart anomalies. There's a history of prematurity, indwelling medical uh, devices like uh, VP shunts, or if they're immunocompromised, obviously those are going to be a little more at risk. And it should have a lower threshold for initiating a workup. And be careful about those patients that have been on a history of recent antibiotics, and they're still, or even on them yet, and they're still having fever. Uh, you know, those kids could have a partially treated uh, serious bacterial infection like meningitis. One retrospective study of children less than two years of age with bacterial meningitis 
83 of 258, 32% were given antibiotics for more than two days before their meningitis was identified. So it's not an uncommon thing. Often these patients demonstrated less fever, less altered mental status. They often had longer duration of other symptoms like vomiting or had ENT kind of findings, ear infections that got them on the antibiotics. And the real problem was meningitis. So always think about the possibility there's a partially treated meningitis in, on this kind of kids who have persistent fever while they've been on antibiotics. Now they might have a viral infection, that's just, you know, that antibiotic's not going to change that, but they're still having some significant symptoms, you have to think about that possibility. That's a difficult decision then a lot of times to decide whether to do a tap or not. The height of the fever, prevalence of, of serious bacterial infection does increase with higher temperature, especially in the younger infant. In fact, uh, for 38% of infants less than three months with a fever greater than 40 will have a, a serious bacterial infection. So the higher fever you, you do see, the more likely you're going to have to be a little more concerned about it, especially the younger you get. Um, things we want from history, sure we like to know the duration of the fever, the method, how they took the temperature, um, did they use any antipyretics, but, and, and what doses they used. Um, but studies have shown that the duration of fever is not really helpful in identifying whether there's occult bacteremia or not, and whether they respond to antipyretics or not has no bearing on whether there's a serious bacterial infection or not. So it kind of is like giving Tylenol to see if they'll respond or not, you know, that, that's not really going to help you making any decisions whether there's something there or not, or shouldn't anyway. Looking for associated behaviors, coughing, vomiting, ear pulling, that would give you an idea of the of potential focus. But other things, as uh, many of you know, we want to see if they've had their immunizations, because now that's going to make a big difference as far as what you might do. Um, daycare attendance, recurrent ear infections. Uh, one study looking at uh, patients who had daycare attendance and recurrent ear infections were identified as risk factors for having invasive pneumococcal disease in less than two years. Now, that was before. Pneumovax, you know, so we have a little less concern about these things, but in the past, that's what it was. So look at the overall appearance of the child. A sicker or more toxic appearing child is more likely to have a serious bacterial infection. And uh, regardless of age, if a child looks ill, you should need to do a more aggressive workup, um, including, and maybe, uh, giving, and including empiric antibiotics and hospitalization. So, you know, determining whether a child looks sick or not. I remember when I was a medical student, especially, I'd get that ask, that question, and it's like, I don't know, they didn't, look, they didn't look that good to me, you know. I don't know if they're really sick. And when you're first starting out, especially, and you don't have a lot of, of experience with young children, and, is, you know, and when they're ill, do they really look sick? It's really difficult. Um, but it's not really entirely an intuitive process. It's often is, is based on a specific uh, behavior and appearance of the infant. And one thing that was developed that kind of looked into this was something called the Yale Observation Scale. It was developed by McCarthy and others that basically asked a bunch of clinicians, you know, what, uh, you know, what is it about this kid that when you see them sick, what, what makes clues to you they, that you think it, they're sick? And so they took all these things that people said and tested it uh, prospectively and um, identified six observational items that seemed to be significant and independent predictors of serious bacterial infection. And this is the Yale observation scale. I'm not going to go over it you know, completely, but uh, quality of cry, reaction of parents, state variation, color, hydration, response to social overtures, those were the six things that they kind of uh, pulled out as being uh, significant. And using that scale, they found that if you had a score less than 10, less than or equal to 10, you had about a 2.7% of serious bacterial infection. You weren't likely to have an infection, serious bacterial infection. And if you're greater than or equal to 16, you had over 90% chance of having a serious bacterial infection. And the only bad thing about it is there's a lot of people who are in between that 10 to 16 range. That's where a lot of kids uh, turn out to be. But um, so it's not, you know, the end all certainly of, of determining whether a child is sick, but it gives you a little bit of something to hang on as far as when does a child 
uh, really look ill. So on exam, you might see uh, a finding that really sh is a viral or bacterial infection. And viral infections such as stom stomatitis, croup, chickenpox, influenza A, all those have shown that if you have you've identified that in the child, they really do have a significant lower risk of serious bacterial infection. And so if you identify those and make that diagnosis, you probably don't have to be looking for other uh, serious bacterial infections that call serious bacterial infections in those children. Is RSV on that list? Um, no, although there is some studies that looking at RSV, um, and uh, there is a decreased risk. But when the you really young infants, like in that first couple months of life, uh, you think there's RSV. There's still a lot of times uh, concurrent serious bacterial infection, and so um, even though, uh, so you have to kind of use your judgment again. But if you get the younger you get, even if there's RSV, you still will probably have to do a, a workup especially those kids less than a month of age, um, but even in the first two months. If you do identify a focal bacterial infection, um, obviously you wanted to start directed therapy for that. But in, um, in children uh, in the neonates, you know, still are going to require a more comprehensive diagnostic evaluation. Um, patients with fever and ear infection. Uh, a lot of studies have looked at this, and if you have an ear infection, it seems to be there's the same rate of bacteremia um, and other serious bacterial infections. So, you know, if you see an ear infection, uh, it might steer you a little more likely to give antibiotics and not do any further workup. But if you're, something bothers you in, about this patient, and if you would really would do a lot of other workup um, normally, if you didn't find that ear infection, that probably shouldn't prevent you from going ahead and doing that workup. But if you're on the fence, certainly that, that will kind of make you go one way or the other if you see an ear infection. So in the pro for as far as children, 0 to 28 days, um, these kids are at high risk for bacterial infections, uh, usually uh, caused by Streptococcus group B, but also E. coli, Listeria, herpes simplex can, as uh, they're frequently infected with that virus as, uh, as well, and can have some serious com uh, problems with it. The, uh, their um, immune systems are more immature and so they are more vulnerable and we get worried about them a lot quicker. Streptococcus pneumoniae, you know, these kids are not going to be protected, you know, from vaccinations because uh, they haven't received it yet. But the good thing about it is that streptococcus pneumonia infections in the really young infants or in, in neonates is very, very rare, which is a good thing. Um, and, but if they do get it, they do have a high mortality rate. That's the bad thing. Um, most infections in this age group are still viral and not bacterial, but 12% in this age group presenting to the ED will have a serious bacterial infection if they have fever. So that's significant. Most common by far is urinary tract infections, but also occult bacteremia and meningitis. So your routine workup needs to be more aggressive in this because of the greater probability of having a serious bacterial infection. And a lot of risk stratifications that we're going to talk about in, uh, next in the next age group, these risk stratification strategies have not been found to be effective in really determining who does or doesn't have a serious bacterial infection. So um, we can't really apply them to this first month of life age group. Um, and as I just was saying, they, they are at increased risk in this first month of life, even if there's RSV um, present, you should still do a full workup. And that includes blood culture, a urinalysis, and urine culture. The catheterized specimens really uh, should be done in this age group because of the higher contamination of bagged specimens. You need to get a urine culture because a UA in this age group in the first few months of life often uh, is negative even when there's a, 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 urine col or a, um, a urinary tract infection. The urine culture will come back positive. So always send a urine culture. And then lumbar puncture with a cell count gram stain. Um, possibly thinking about HSV testing as well at this uh, uh, age group. Getting a blood count and differential, although that's really not going to discriminate whether there's a serious bacterial infection or not. It's still something we get. And then a chest film if there's respiratory symptoms. And if there's diarrhea, do a stool culture and stool uh, leukocytes 
um, for because colitis uh, is something that we do see sometimes, especially if there's diarrhea. So all of these should be hospitalized and receive IV antibiotics, usually genomycin and ampicillin. Um, cefetaxim can be used instead of the genomycin. I think the preference here is to use genomycin and ampicillin. Hypothermic. Yes, I think if you have a child who's hypothermic and they're not acting quite right, you better be working them up. You know. Well, you get a rectal temperature, and that's a good question. Do you, do, Carlin, do you have an exact number that you people have used as a cutoff? I, all I know is you better get a rectal temperature, you know, but in some sense, so if you have a child who's not looking right, you're going to be working them up whether they have a fever or not at this age group. Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, a child that's hypothermic could be, uh, have a serious bacterial infection. So that should be also something that you should look at. Um, herpes uh, simplex infections and neonates also are, are, can have some complications. And uh, so starting high dose acyclovir in this age group is also not a bad idea. Um, some things that make them a little more at risk if there's, of course, a primary maternal infection. But uh, children who have a fetal scalp electrode uh, seem to be at higher risk. But certainly children who present with seizures or they have CSF pleocytosis, um, they're more, be more at risk they're, if there's a history of prolonged rupture of membranes or if you do see any skin, uh, eye or mouth lesions like this uh, child has. Also, so getting outside this next group. So one month old, there's not that much, you know, one month and younger, there's not too much debate. But there's a lot more uh, debate about what to do with this one to three month range and how much you know, workup do you have to do? You know, when can you get away without doing much workup? Uh, and it's, and there's still a lot of debate about this. But it's certainly nice if we could kind of figure out of this age group, which ones do we really have to be hospitalized? You know, that really would help cost, decrease costs and family stress. And sometimes, you know, being in the hospital is not always a safe thing either. And they can develop other problems having been in the hospital. So in the 1990s, there, there was a number of, of studies done, and you should be somewhat aware of this, and again, I'm not going to have time to really go into depth with this, but there was a number of uh, risk stratification strategies that were published, and these are commonly called the Rochester, Boston, and Philadelphia criteria. The pictures of Rochester, Boston, and Philadelphia there for you, just in case you were wondering what they look like. Um, but this is a, a brief kind of summary of, of these criteria. And they're, they're somewhat different, but for the most part, they're fairly similar. Um, and, and I'll give a general view of them together here in a little bit. But generally, laboratory testing in this age group is for the most part required. Um, and mostly this is because physical exam will miss a substantial number of, of serious bacterial infection. Fortunately, again, pneumococcal infections in, in this age group are still rare, and um, and so and uh, but because uh, you know they're not really getting the vaccine yet, it's not going to really change the incident. And well, because pneumococcal vac uh, uh, serious bacterial infections are rare in this age group, the pneumococcal vaccine is not going to really change the incidence of, of of bacterial disease in this age group much. So. Um, that hasn't changed things too much for this age group. So uh, diagnostic testing is similar for this age group to, to the neonate for the most part. Now, if you are able to identify some specific viral infections, um, that might prevent you from doing some of the workup if the child looks well. But uh, for the most part, uh, you're going to want to be doing a workup. Now, lumbar puncture is probably the one thing that um, you still need to think about, but you might be able to, to, to drop out of the workup. Um, but uh, bacterial meningitis is relatively rare, uh, 4.1 per 1,000 febrile infants in this age group. Unfortunately, the white blood cell count and a, a clinical exam does not always reliably rule that out. So that's why it's kind of hard whether to drop out that lumbar puncture or not in your workup. So these risk stratifications have been used in this age group. And in general, uh, if you look at these, these stratifications, this is the, the kind of high risk. It's a child that's greater than 15,000 white count, less than 5,000. If they have a band and neutrophil ratio of greater than or equal to 0.2. 
if they have a positive leukocyte esterase or nitrite on dipstick greater than five white blood cells per high power field on urinalysis, or if there's bacteria seen on a gram-stained, uncentrifuged uh, urine sample. If you're doing the stool sample because they have diarrhea and they have greater than five white blood cells uh, per high power field, if your x-ray shows pneumonia, um, or if there's greater than eight white blood cells, greater than or equal to eight white blood cells on CSF exam. All of those would put a child at higher risk for serious bacterial infection. Those children should be admitted to the hospital and receive IV antibiotics. Um, again, in this age group, a documented viral infection does not eliminate SBI, but it does increase the decrease the risk. So if you uh, look at children under the Rochester criteria, the study done, they found that those children that had a documented viral infection that you could determine their serious bacterial rate was only 4.2% in this age group uh, in this study, where those who did not have identifiable source, 12.3%. So it decreases the risk, but it doesn't really eliminate it. So you have to look at that child uh, very critically. The most common, again, your urinary tract infection. So if you're going to, you know, one thing you don't want to drop out of your your evaluation for certain is doing a urine. Okay, so any ch child appears ill or if they have a normal laboratory test that puts them in that high risk, probably going to receive antibiotics. Ceftriaxone is still most common antibiotic, but if they really look sick, um, you're probably going to have to add in vancomycin because of resistance that we're starting to see of certain organisms. Um, for the well-appearing uh, child, yeah, Dean? Yeah. That's not what that no, it's the child that looks well. It looks great. Yeah, this child looks great. So a child looks ill, they really, on this age group, they need to be worked up completely and admitted for IV antibiotics. Now, sometimes ill is in the eye of the beholder, unfortunately, but, you know, if that's what your determination is, then that's, how, then that's the reasonable approach. For uh, children that look well, though, and have no abnormal tests, so they're at low risk in this age group, um, then you, don't, you can hold back antibiotics completely, have them follow up with a regular doctor. Um, or you can give IM or I, IV uh, ceftriaxone or an oral amoxicillin until the cultures are negative. Um, the big thing is that I sometimes see is that in this age group, giving antibiotics but didn't do the spinal tap. Um, that's really a no-no. That's where we get into trouble. Um, and you, you know, say, well, I don't want to risk, you know. Well, you're gonna, if you just treat that partially, it's going to be much more harder for people to figure out what's going on. So they're much better off to hold antibiotics completely, not do the LP, but don't give antibiotics. If you're going to give antibiotics, you better have the LP done in this age group. They can be still difficult. You can still miss them, but yes, they're much easier than any adult. <laughs> now, sometimes with a lumbar puncture, with a child that looks relatively well, you might, and the parents are resistant, you might discuss that, the options. You know, if your child doesn't look ill, child looks well, and your rest of your evaluation is negative, that might be a, a place where you can come together and decide, you know, knowing that there's an increased risk, but not putting them on antibiotics, you know. So in this age group, if you do, uh, if you do find a year, for this age group, if you do find a child with a urinary tract infection, but they otherwise look pretty well, you probably can send them still home. You know, if you, that's the infection. If they look well, and they, but you identify urinary tract infection, they might be able to be home, uh, perf uh, have home treatment. But if you do send these low-risk patients home, you do have to make certain that the patient can come back. If there's problems, um, that they can have reliable follow-up in 24 hours, and that they agree with the plan, and perhaps even their regular uh, provider agrees with that plan. Um, I haven't done that as much, but when I was at Blank, I would often call the pr provider up and say, or their, whoever's on call for them, and mention I see this febrile infant and I want them to follow up tomorrow, just so they don't slip through the cracks. Kind of another thing to protect me, sending them home, that I talk to the daycare provider, the daycare provider, talk to their healthcare provider, and uh, kind of, you know, put a little more, you know, their uh, kind of responsibility to make certain that that patient comes back in. Okay, what about the older infant and young child? Um, often these are a little more easier to determine by history and exam. Um, our exam is a little more reliable. These children are able to often 
describe their complaints a little bit better to really tell you kind of what's really going on. But some serious bacterial infections remain occult in this group. In particular, things are going to be trying to determine if the present or not, is there a bacteremia, is there a pneumonia, or is there a urinary tract infection in present? So, <clears throat> occult bacteremia, strep pneumo, was, uh, was the most common anyway. I haven't seen real recent data to see if that's switched now. Probably will be. But before Pneumovax, it was cause of 90% of occult bacteremia. Six to 24 months was, is, is the greatest risk. Um, the higher the fever, the little greater the risk of a bacteremia. In those with bacteremia, about 17% will develop focal infections, and 3 to 5% with an occult pneumococcal bacteremia will develop meningitis. So there is an increased risk for developing more serious infections if you have an occult bacteremia. Now, prior to Pneumovax, the rate of occult bacteremia, which was a lot less than the 80s before Hib vaccine, but it was still 1.5 to 2%. And at that time, with that kind of rate, the most effective management strategy, if you had a child 3 to 24 months of age with a fever of 39 degrees or greater, or a 2 to 3-year-old with a fever greater than or equal to 39.5 degrees, was to obtain a CBC. And if the CBC was greater than 15,000, to go ahead and do a blood culture and treat them with antibiotics. <coughs> until the cultures remain negative, maybe seen the next day, give another dose of, of uh, ceftriaxone or go home with amoxicillin and, and do that for several days until the cultures remain negative. So that was the most cost-effective strategy pre-Numavax. But that's changing, has changed. So, as I said, you, can use, you could use IV or oral antibiotics, and they were both just as effective. Both seemed to decrease the, the fever associated to bacteremia and also the uh, subsequent risk for focal infection. Uh, it just became part of routine, and also there were some studies that, uh, that were came out with ceftriaxone, a really, really very good study to use ceftriaxone as an outpatient uh, management of this. Uh, but other studies with amoxicillin have been just as effective, but, you know, it just seems like you're doing a lot more if you give an injection. Yeah. So. Well, you used to not use 80 and 90, but it was 45 when a lot of these studies were done. But certainly, you could uh, at this point, I would use 80, 90. Um, so, um, so you can use uh, oral antibiotics just for, for this if you had any questions. Um, the big thing is most occult bacteremia will resolve on its own, which is kind of nice. Since Pneumovax, other organisms have become a bigger percentage of the smaller occult bacteremia pie, if you will. Um, one study in Northern California looked at all pathogenic organisms isolated from outpatient blood cultures in children 3 to 36 months of age, post-Pneumovax. Um, and they found that one-third of those were non-vaccine serotypes, strep pneumo. One-third were E. coli. And the rest were smattering of these other uh, bacteria, including Staph aureus. As we, and we might be able to cut more into that uh, non-vaccine serotype, strep pneumo, as we increase, uh, get a new vaccine that increases the number of serotypes it covers. Well, meningococcal bacteremia. Uh, this is something that really worries uh, me. Um, fortunately, it's pretty rare. It worries, I think, ER physicians as well. It's really very infrequent. And it's only 0.02% of non-toxic appearing children with fever greater than 39 degrees. Um, but um, most will appear ill, but about 12 to 16% will have an occult infection. And there's a high risk for serious consequences uh, if you have a meningococcus. Um, bacteremia, very good chance that you will develop a meningitis. So it, it can be almost impossible to recognize. And the bad thing is that often has white counts that are less than 15,000. So those old kind of cutoffs, which was for trying to pick up Haemophilus influenza B and then strep pneumo with white counts greater than 15,000, um, that doesn't really hold that well for meningococcal bacteremia. So you could see a kid who has a fever, has meningococcal bacteremia, send them home, 
and then they come back 12 hours later looking very bad. And that's one thing that, that uh, you know, it's good to be lucky as well as life, you know, and rather than unlucky. Um, so as I said, uh, laboratory testing is not all that helpful because it's of the low prevalence of the disease and also a low positive predictive value of white blood cell count. They often don't have an elevated white blood cell count. So if you do identify children that you think might be higher risk for meningococcal bacteremia, so if they are asplenic um, or they have contact with patients with meningococcal disease, there you know there's a meningococcal disease outbreak. I mean, you're going to be thinking of this. And children with fever with a particular perperic rash, you're going to be, have to be concerned that they might have meningococcus. But um, otherwise, it's, these can be very difficult to identify. So any child that has a positive blood culture should be reevaluated. Um, unfortunately, contaminated cultures are common, and this is one of the problems as far as changing what we, how we, what we do uh, is greatly the fact that you do a blood culture, a lot of times it's contaminated, people do a lot of work up for this contaminated blood culture, and it's, it's not really cost effective. If they do, uh, if the ch patient has a positive blood culture though and they are persistently ill, we do need to do a full workup, uh, admit them for the hospital to the hospital for, uh, with IV antibiotic. So afebrile children with blood cultures positive for pneumococcus, uh, those patients actually, you repeat the blood culture, but you might still be, if they look well, you could still treat them as an outpatient. Uh, and, but all meningococcal bacteremic patients should be hospitalized for IV therapy. So right now, this test of looking at management strategies, they found that if the prevalence dropped to 0.5% for occult bacteremia, that clinical judgment alone uh, could be used rather than laboratory testing to determine if you thought there was a cold bacteremia. Um, and you know, with like I said, with the Pneumovax, we probably have reached this rate. And that's why at least uh, I think a lot of people are moving and not to doing kind of these white blood cell count as a screening test for a cold bacteremia if the patient has received their uh, pneumococcal uh, vaccination. Again. Ones we can start being worried about, meningococcal, salmonella, bacteremia, neither one has an elevated uh, ANC or white blood cell uh, count frequently, and so they're really not picking those up with a white blood cell count anyway. So a febrile young child is fully immunized and well-appearing, you probably don't have to really look for a cold bacteremia. Those who are, look, are borderline, not fully immunized, or those with medical problems that might make them more at risk, chronic illness problems, probably still might, may want to do the white blood cell count if it is elevated to treat them like we had in the past for cold bacteremia. You know, CRP, uh, people have start, try to use that as, a, as an indicator for serious bacterial infection. Unfortunately, um, a lot of the studies have shown a wide range is a cutoff from one to seven. Um, the lower the cutoff, the, lower, the higher the sensitivity in most studies, but the lower the specificity. So we really don't know if this, you know, so we probably do need to make some more studies with this. Procalcitonin, which is something that is in Europe, uh, may be a better indicator, but again, uh, it's not av available here and still needs more studies to see if how that's going to change the, the kind of um, our decision-making trees. Urinary tract infection. Uh, again, we're looking for serious bacterial infections that are occult. Risk factors, the younger the child, whites, actually, are increased risk for urinary tract infection. Girls, of course, uncircumcised boys, fever greater than or equal to 39 degrees, a little more at risk for, for UT, occult UTI. In fact, girls less than two years with a fever without source of greater than 39 have about a 16% likelihood of UTI. So that's pretty high. Um, so if they don't have a source, you should be looking for a urinary tract infection. Uh, occult, in other words, you're not, you, you have a fever, of basically occult, because you, you have a fever, yes, but you don't know what the, what the cause of the fever is. And so uh, on exam, you don't see any evidence of a urinary tract infection. That's what I mean. Um, yeah, no symptoms. I mean, you know, exam. I mean, that's for urinary tract infection, that's the way it is. But even pneumonias, you know, we're talking about occult pneumonia, which I can talk about in a couple of minutes. You may not hear any, you know, findings that made you think there was a, a pneumonia there. So children less than a year with another source of fever, uh, gastroenteritis, otitis media, upper respiratory infection, still have about a 3% likelihood of UTI. So uh, you have to think about in this age group that one thing uh, is a checking a urine. Girls less than two years of age, if they have two of the following, they're at increased risk and they have fever without source, you need to think about UTI. 
Less than 12 months, greater than 39 degrees. Fever for two or more days, white or no alternative source of fever. You know, if you have two of those, you should be checking the urine. Boys, they're less than six months uh, or uncircumcised less than 12 months. They need to have urines and you have to consider it in those that are circumcised in, less, in six to 12 or uncircumcised even 12 to 24 months. Uncircumcised males, nine times more likely to have a, a urinary tract infection. Greater than 10 white blood cells, indicative of UTI. Uh, a lot of these kids still need to have a urine culture sent. Um, the younger the child, the more likely you will get a uh, false negative urinalysis. Well-appearing children maybe at this age group certainly can be managed as outpatients, treated seven to 14 days, a longer course than you typically would do in a, an adult. Uh, cult pneumonia can be sometimes difficult to diagnose. Um, a little more likely to, to have a pneumonia if you do find these kind of findings, tachypnea crackles. But a lot of kids who have pneumonia, you just have sound okay. And the normal pulse ox, of course, doesn't rule out a pneumonia. So get a chest x-ray. If you have a temperature greater than 39 degrees, uh, and a wipe count greater than 20,000, certainly want to get a chest x-ray. 20% uh, chance of pneumonia if no source, or only a minor bacteria source is found on exam uh, with those kind of uh, parameters. And even without a white blood cell count, you really should think about a chest x-ray in children less than five years of age if they have a temperature greater than or equal to 39 degrees, especially if they have a respi some respiratory findings. Not necessary for children, though, greater than three months if they have a fever or a white count greater than 20,000 if they have no pulmonary problems. So the, the most pneumonia is viral, and a lot of the pneumonias you'll see on x-ray are viral, um, but we still treat them with antibiotics usually. And uh, most of these can be treated as, as, on an outpatient basis with amoxicillin or even a, uh, or a macrolide. In conclusion, young febrile patients can be a challenge. Uh, many will need to have studies done, uh, but sometimes we can avoid those with uh, this risk stratification strategies. Antibiotic administration should not be delayed by waiting until the lumbar puncture. You can give the antibiotics even before getting the lumbar puncture done. And, uh, uh, CF uh, cultures are still valid for a number of hours after post-antibiotic post administration. And if you are like out in the uh, community and you can't get uh, uh, a uh, um, uh, blood or IV, you know, go ahead and put a topical anesthetic on it so at least kids numb by the time they get to their referral uh, community. <laughs> okay. Any questions?